Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. Today's episode is very powerful. That's how I would put it. Um, You will meet Scott Strode in a few minutes here. He's the founder of Phoenix Multisport, a nonprofit organization for people in recovery from substance use disorder and who choose to live sober. Phoenix's goal is to expand people's sober community while creating a safe environment. So they use sports to create this community and to help people build new relationships through activities like climbing, hiking, running, cycling, CrossFit, yoga, and many more often dependent on where you live. (laughs) This subject is definitely close to my heart. I first met Scott uh, probably in about 2005 when I was in denial about my ability to include alcohol in my life. I had just literally taken a year off of drinking, which by the way, was the second time in my adult life that I had taken a year off of drinking. And I returned to drinking with the thought that I'd be fine with a glass of wine or a beer when I wanted it. But what always happened to me was this. When other things in my life struggled, like my marriage or my job or whatever it was, um, I would pick up drinking again. And when those times came, I couldn't have just one. So drinking became my outlet. And eventually I started acting out through drinking. It was like I needed to go out and party. So when I finally quit for good a couple years after I met Scott, which had it's been over a decade now, I was very appreciative and very aware of the community Scott had created for people just like me. But you don't need to be a recovering alcoholic or drug addict to relate to this interview. We all carry shame on some level, sometimes for things we did when we were 12 years old or things we did last week. The underlying point is that at certain times in our lives, we may find ourselves in need of change. And Scott has incredible insight, compassion, and wisdom for people who want to change their lives. But if you or someone you love or someone you just know someone you like, (laughs) maybe suffering from substance substance use disorder. And that is an actual term that they use now to describe things like alcoholism or drug addiction. Um, Please reach out. Scott is open and available to help. So am I. You know, if we don't know the answer, we'll find something, you know, someone who does. All right, everyone. With that little foundation laid, let's bring on Scott Strode. All right. Are you ready, Scott? Yeah, I am. Cool. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Thanks for coming out to Boulder. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I know you, we met in Boulder, actually. Um, I got to take us back. I think it, it had to be like when I was starting skirt sports, like maybe 2005, 2006. When did you start Phoenix? Uh, Phoenix has been around for about 11 years. Yeah. So It was right at the beginning. And I remember you caught my eye because there was something inside me that knew what you were doing was uh, it was sort of triggering an insecurity an insecurity in me that said maybe I have a problem here, which I've always known my whole life, right? Basically, since I took my first drink, I knew I probably had a problem with this thing, but I kept going anyway. So I remember meeting with you. We sat down at a Monte Coffee. You're not going to remember this because you've met with so many people. Mm -hmm. And I just was asking you about Phoenix and talking a little bit, and you were just so open and gracious and um, sharing why you started this community to help recovering addicts and people with alcohol problems. And um, and I remember saying, well, when is it a problem? And I'd love to hear what you say now, I'll t and then I'll tell you what you said then. Yeah, well, I, I, I always say to folks that, that if their relationship with drugs or alcohol or anything, it doesn't, it could be, you know, how much they train for their own Ironman or their, their fitness or their pursuit of wealth or their job. If it starts affecting them or the people that, that love them negatively, they should look at their relationship with it. Well, that's exactly what you said back then. So you <laughs> haven't changed a thing. And, you know, I knew when you said that, that I needed to address this thing someday. So I may today throw in some of my own personal experiences with alcohol abuse and the issues I've had in my journey. But what I want to do and what I want to start with is your journey. Because Scott, you have created an organization through Phoenix Multisport that is changing people's lives, literally saving people's lives. And people need to know about this. Not everyone listening will be personally affected in that they have a problem. Many, many probably do or did or are struggling with that, but many people know someone. So, so let's get on with this. I, you know, you live in a world of addiction and pain and suffering. That's sort of what you're surrounded by. People don't just start that because they want to, usually. There's usually some kind of story. Mm -hmm. So I know it can be uncomfortable, but you, you've become an open book over the years. Um, I think it's important that you share how, what your issues and struggles have been with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to share because I think that the more we are open about our stories, the more space we make for others that, that might be struggling uh, to kind of reach out and ask for help. And I, I um, so I'm a, I'm a trauma survivor from, you know, my, my mom and dad got divorced when I was really young. I grew up with a father with, with mental illness. And I, I think if, um, he was also pretty emotionally abusive. And then my mom remarried and there was alcoholism in that family. So I grew up with alcoholism in the home. And, and I think when you're a little kid growing up in that environment and you don't get to have that, um, those, those attachment sort of moments where you start to develop self-worth and this idea that you're of value and, and sometimes the messages you get are, are contrary to that. Um, it really wounds self-esteem in a way that, that 
leaves you in a place of not believing in yourself, but also some self-loathing, you know, that I'm not of worth, that I'm not worthy or worthy of love. And, and of course I didn't have this awareness then, you know, I was a teenager with a Mohawk who punched walls and would, you know, get grounded and leave the house and, um, started drinking at 11, uh, started cocaine at 15 and, um, dealt with some depression and mental health stuff when I was 15 as well. And, you know, it's, it's just with addiction, it's sort of insidious. It sort of starts to lead you on a path you never thought you would be on. And I looked at myself when I was 24 living in Boston and, and, uh, I was working, building boats and doing, you know, carpentry. I, um, was, Every time I picked up a drink, I would pick up 15 more. Um, I would then black out and start using Coke. And then I was smoking Coke. And and at the time, I was working with at-risk youth. And and I thought I was kind of sharing this, this integrity, the way we should live our life. But then I'd go home at night and be a train wreck. And, and it just compounded that shame component. And I realized, like, at some level that I never dreamed I would grow up to be this person. I never dreamed I'd grow up to be an addict. And somebody got me into a boxing gym and something about getting in the ring for the first time gave me this confidence and belief in myself that I hadn't had before. And training and the focus of training and trying to get better at it became my new focus. And that led me into triathlon. And and as you know, like crossing those finish lines, you know, it, it it does something there for your self-esteem that that helped me start to heal and that was the beginning of my recovery so would you say that person who introduced you to the boxing gym was someone you will always have a debt of gratitude for <laughs> yeah yeah is he or she still in your life <laughs> no no she's not she was a golden gloves fighter in in the boston area and she quit pretty quickly introduced me to her coach who was a um, retired professional fighter and he was in recovery and there were f- several sober people in the gym but it was those folks along with the people that were honest about my drinking that that can were concerned about me and expressed concern that that helped me start to think that maybe this was a real issue that i had to address he- this is there's so many um, components that have just come up. I mean, I, I want to hit on a few of them. First of all, you grew up in an environment with your family that didn't have as much stability or at least uh, to allow you to develop social and emotional stability, right? So that leads you into a world of insecurity. And I know a lot of people listening are parents, and everyone is scared to death that they're going to screw up their kids. So, I mean, what advice do you have for people from your experiences that could help them avoid this path for their kids? Because to have your first drink at 11, it's pretty young, but it's probably, you know the stats more than I do. I would Mm -hmm. assume it's more the norm these Mm -hmm. days. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, when thinking about kind of the environments that we're bringing our kids up in, um, you know, I I had the chance to do a TEDx talk uh, just recently and... And in there, I talk a lot about childhood trauma. And I think one of the problems when we talk about trauma is we always think about the big ones, you know, 
um, you know, growing up in the war-torn country, physical and sexual abuse. But, but trauma can also be covert. It's those little messages that teach us that we're not worthy or it's our fault or we did something wrong. And when you're a little kid, the world is just your world. You don't really see beyond it. You can't do kind of complex thought that adults do. So when, you know, if, when mom and dad are fighting in front of you or when you are being yelled at for something, it, you internalize it as this shame place. It goes there pretty quickly. And, and I think that trying to create nurturing environments for our kids is critical. And I think even just in, even just making a list of what nurturing is to you and keeping that top of mind can be helpful in how we interact with others, because obviously shaming or belittling or, um, take, you know, using a child for your own emotional support, you know, things like that aren't nurturing to your child. But if you just have that list, you know, I bet most parents have never made a list. I've never made a list. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, what, what's on your list? <laughs> well, I think it's a lot of the principles that help create Phoenix Multisport. So when you come to a Phoenix Multisport program, you have to adhere to a code of conduct. And that code of conduct essentially says anything that isn't nurturing isn't welcome. And so on that, on the spirit of that list, it's not written in words, but is to create a place where you're accepted you're supported, you're believed in. If you make mistakes, you're welcome back in. A place that that um, is both physically and emotionally safe. And those are the same things that I have on my list on how I interact with other people to try to be supportive. Yeah. And we're, oh. we're human, so we're not perfect. But No, it's just so powerful, though. Um, it, just the word nurture brings up this whole concept of nature versus nurture with, um, you know, with addictions. So what's your, you know, what's your take on that? I mean, if you grow up with two parents who are raging alcoholics, are you just destined to be that? Do people just sort of give in? Or how, how does it work? You could live with parents who've never touched a drink and become a yeah. raging alcoholic yourself. <laughs> sure. Well, I think, I think um, a therapist that helped me out a lot on my journey shared with me that he kind of said that nature loads the gun but nurture decides whether the trigger's pulled. And so some of us, because of the environments we grew up in, because of some genetic components, co-occurring mental health, we may have, we may be more susceptible. But if we're, grow if we're raised in a more nurturing environment, the likelihood of that manifesting in our life goes down. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big gun person, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very obviously, yeah. And I think that can uh, segue into so many other issues that people often want to put on one side of the table or the other. Yeah. And I think, you know, too often we can, it's easy to take somebody struggling with substance use disorder, um, you know, and say that, oh, that addict, that person, those people, is that they're different from from the rest of society, but I think if you look at this this issue in our society of us seeking our emotional well being externally, like is it how much money we make? Is it where we work? Is it what we look like? How many Instagram followers? How many likes did my picture get? You know, it's all these things that ultimately will never bring us happiness. The happiness has to come from within. But I looked for the drink and the drug to bring that to me, and it never did. Well, and, and one of my questions 
just a blanket question was what are addicts seeking? Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, it is, it's a very complex, complex issue. And I think for it's different for everyone. But I think most of us are numbing some emotional pain. Mm. You know, it's, it's that, that voice that told me I wasn't worthy or wasn't worth deserving of love or, and it would go away when I would drink or when I would drug. And then sometimes in that drinking and drugging, I found an identity, even though it was negative, but it was something that I could, you know, if you wanted to have a fun party, you'd invite me to it. You know, that's what it used to be in the old days until it wasn't fun anymore. And I was just doing it by myself. And, and, uh, you know, I think that coping mechanism of drugs and alcohol can stop serving us pretty quickly. Well, let's talk about this concept of uh, creating an identity around something like drugs or drinking. Um, I know I did back in the day, you know, I was the fun girl who could party and loved and took pride in being able to like do shots, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't yeah. know. And it, and looking back, it's so embarrassing to think about like I, this shame, this concept of shame, everyone listening can relate to this, right? At some level of doing something in their life where they look back and they're like, why did I do that? Who was that person? You know, um, but uh, why is it that we create an identity around this thing that is so clearly negative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it. It's also, I think, a sign of our the difficulty. Uh, so, Brene Brown. I'm not sure if you've read her stuff, but she says that shame is is proof that we're social creatures because hmm. shame is the fear of loss of connection. You know, oh, yeah. if they knew me, they wouldn't want to have me in their life anymore. You know, if they knew what I did, they wouldn't want me in their life anymore. And and so I think I think that we all struggle with this. You know, we all get embarrassed. We all we all worry if we're going to be accepted or and then, you know, when you have a drink or a drug, it seems easier, but but it's empty. I think of it this way. I think of addiction often as like Anything that's an addictive behavior often is like flash paper on the fire. It won't keep you warm for very long, but it burns hot for a second. Mm. And as soon as it's gone, you have to put more on to try to get that warmth back. And I, most of my addiction, I was throwing that flash paper on the fire. And the things that are the equivalent of putting a log on the fire are real, genuine, clear-headed connection with people. It's loving relationships. It's it's relationships where you're accepted no matter what, where there's no judgment, you know, and it's those things that really warm us over a long period of time. So let's go, let's uh, pretend somebody listening is questioning whether they have a problem or maybe they know they have a problem and they're not ready to face it, but they know they need to be ready to face it soon, right? Yeah. So what do, what do you suggest for that person? What's the first thing you suggest they do? Well, I think, I think if you're in that early phase and you're not sure, you kind of doubt whether you have a problem or not. I always just think remove that thing from the scenario for a long enough period of time. And if it doesn't make a difference, then you maybe you didn't have a problem. You know, I always think of it like, 
if you're lactose intolerant, you know, stop eating ice cream for a while. And if you get better, then it was probably the ice cream, <laughs> you know? That's a really good point. <laughs> but if you truly are addicted and you can't remove it on your own. Yep. And if you find yourself sort of bargaining, like, oh, it's probably not that. It's not beer. It's whiskey. Or it's not, it's not weed. It's Coke. If you start kind of bargaining with yourself around it and making excuses for you to continue to have it in your life, then maybe maybe you have an issue with it, you know? And if you do, if you know you do, or you're reflecting and you're thinking, the people that I love and care about and myself, I'm being destructive to those relationships or myself in some way because of drugs and alcohol, then, then there's a lot of places you can reach out to. You know, the 12, 12 step community is a really powerful way for a lot of people to get connected and you know, also programs like Phoenix Multisport. That's why our program's free. Mm -hmm. And that's, yep. you know, part of our program is that you only need 48 hours clean and sober because we want people to be able to dip their toe in the water and see if, like, in reflection, Friday night was awesome. I went with these sober people for a bike ride, but Saturday was the same old drama. I was drinking with my friends, and maybe I need to do some more stuff like Friday night mm -hmm. and Saturday night. I we're going to dig in deeply here to Phoenix in a minute because I really want people to understand what you built and why you built it. But before we do, I want to share. Um, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my background with drinking mm -hmm. and uh, like you first drink in, you know, maybe junior high, high school. Right. It was immemorable. I don't remember it. All I remember, though, is that along the way I fought to like alcohol. I didn't like it, mm -hmm. but I wanted to, right? Because it allowed me to, it, or I thought at the time, it allowed me to release some inhibitions, right? And be super fun. And I took pride in being extreme in everything I did. Extreme athlete, extreme in school, extreme in partying, right? So I remember an incident, and this goes into like that question of the first thing to do. Um, I remember an incident right after college where I drank way too much at some friend's wedding and um, the next, and I, I'm sure I did, I, I know I did really stupid stuff. And um, the next morning I woke up and I used to black out all the time. I, I often, most of the time, didn't know what I did when I was drinking, which I find to be such a weird phenomenon that like you are, I could be sitting here talking to you but not know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying, yeah. right? It's not like you pass out and you're just laying in the gutter, which also happened to me a lot. But, um, and I remember the next morning talking to my friend and thinking I should get some help. Like I do have a problem and kind of said it out loud to a friend. And then it was like, well, why don't you call AA? So I looked up AA in the yellow pages and I called and I didn't know what I expected. I think I expected them to be like, come in and do this and do that. And they were just like, um, weren't super friendly and open and maybe this was a reflection of 20 years ago right but uh and they were just like well there's a chapter meeting some certain day like near where you live and i remember thinking but what do i do mm -hmm. like do I, I don't do i just go walk in it was just so intimidating and never did it and hence another tw you know 10 year 10 years or so of the same old same old I, and I just look back on that and I wonder what if that first reach out had been more accommodating or had, I don't know, taken me in more. 
So that's just sort of a uh, kind of a story for you. I mean, do you hear that a lot from people that they tried to get help and it they couldn't really figure out how? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I I think that you know it's partly a function of just sort of the so so before this. I was a personal trainer and I coached some endurance athletes and I was a, worked as a climbing guide. I did all sorts of things that had nothing to do with working in the addiction recovery space. And then as I started Phoenix, I started to realize that this is a really deficient area in our society. I think sometimes we think, oh, government's got this covered or, you know, treatment's got this covered or, you know, our hospitals have this this whole thing figured out. And you realize that that's not always the case and that there there really has to be some some innovation even now 10 year 11 years of running phoenix this the addiction recovery space the treatment space it's all still pretty old school you know like there's some some new ways of thinking that have evolved recently and there's more recovery support there's more advocacy work but but even you and I sitting here with smartphones and the internet, if somebody called us right now and wanted to get treatment, it would be hard for us to navigate and let alone somebody who's in the throes of their disease. So I think that's one of the areas that really still has to be focused on is that, that warm, that, that welcoming introduction into recovery. When people are in that moment to make that phone call like you did, what is receiving them on the other end and how do we bring them into recovery? Right, that's a I, you're right on. So maybe maybe that's a follow up here. You know, maybe that's the next stage for Phoenix. I don't know, but well, let's let's move into Phoenix a little bit because clearly there's so much more we could talk about with addiction. Actually, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. You mentioned the actual classification. So, like is it you're not an alcoholic or a drug drug addict? It's called a substance use disorder. And that's like a recognized by yeah, okay. The DSM. Mm-hmm. So it's if you kind of look think of it as like a spectrum. Um so you know, it it the challenge with the term like addict or drug abuser or you know, there's a lot of if I think of myself as an addict, then it's then it's my identity. Mm. versus I am somebody who struggled with a substance use disorder at a period in my life. And and on that, there can be sort of a spectrum, you know, so some can be more extremes. You know, it's like for some people, maybe they missed work because they drank too much the night before. They could might want to look at their relationship with alcohol. For other people, they may have taken someone's life drinking and driving and end up in prison you know there it's it's it plays out differently for all of us but when we call somebody an addict a junkie a drunk you know any of that stuff we start to separate ourselves from that and and really we're all much closer than you might think that's a good point i do think there's certain words that are somewhat polarizing too even the word sober can be polarizing to people, mm-hmm. yep. you know? And I do remember, so I didn't actually do a treatment program. I just had a chain of events occur and after a couple times of trying to stop drinking for a year and then going back to it and not being, and, and having the same old patterns happen, um, I realized like this was affecting my life in a really bad way and could go down a really bad path and I just stopped. And I didn't have a physical effect to stopping so much. It was more mental and emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I do remember. Now I'm going to forget what I was saying because <laughs> there's so much oh, the like emotion sober. in this. I know. Yeah. Oh, and it was. It was about what when I the first time I go out with the friends that I used to drink with because they were still my friends and buddies at the time. Although that changed, mm-hmm. so that's another thing to hit on here is yeah. how your network and connections probably need to change a little bit. Um, what are they going to think? Mm-hmm. No, and and would I? When would I finally be able to embrace the word sober? I'm a sober person, mm-hmm. right? Does that? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Does why does that put some people off? Why do I see people cringe? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting for me. Even before starting Phoenix, I would tell people that I didn't drink. You know, and they often thought it was because I was training for Ironman. Well, at least you, know? you don't get. Are you trying to get pregnant? Like <laughs> yeah, you didn't have yeah. that excuse, right, but yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. They always thought, oh, because you're an athlete or you're training for mm-hmm. Ironman, or um, and and I was that person in recovery who would try to get a glass with ice and a lime so it, people would think I was drinking, mm. even though I wasn't. Yep. And and when Phoenix started, I realized that we had to attack that stigma, and we had to we had to feel empowered by that word sober and by Mm -hmm. our recovery. And I am a better person today because of my recovery. There's nothing that I'm ashamed of that I, you know, I want to own that identity. And the more of us that, you know, Phoenix has a shirt that just says sober across the front. And, and part of that is so that, that we wear that shirt so that other folks can ask for help or choose whether they want to wear it or not. And I think by putting it out there and honestly making it badass to be in recovery, then that's how we make space for more people that are struggling to find help. I think that's a really good way to say it. It's a reframe, a complete reframe. So let's talk Phoenix here. All right. So this is a program that helps people who are recovering through exercise, right? Mm -hmm. I want to, before we even get into it, what about categories like sex addiction or gambling or other addictions people have? Do you also welcome people with those kinds of addictions? Yeah, and that's, you know, circling back to that code of conduct, providing that everyone that shows up is supportive of the other folks that are there and we're respectful of the fact that it's a sober community, any, anybody is welcome. So if you're 48 hours clean and sober and you adhere to our code of conduct, you can show up at an event. Okay. And that's that's critical, I think, because you know many of us in early recovery will then shift that that search for our sort of self worth onto other things that can also be destructive. So we even want to be thoughtful about how people are showing up with exercise. Well, that's a really good point because I remember telling someone about you a long time ago and they said, well, isn't he just shifting addictions? You know, and I keep throwing out the word addiction because I'm not sure how else to phrase it for the sake of today. But yeah, so, okay, you're not like drinking yourself under the table anymore, but now your workouts are like taking priority over everything else in your life. Is that healthy? Yeah, I mean, I think... (laughs) That's a hot one, isn't it? (laughs) Well, if you strip it down just to the basics, mountain biking versus meth, (laughs) I would say go for the mountain biking, right? So even if that's... Even if at the base level, that's all we are doing, but that's far far from what we're doing. Yeah. We're, We're using the athletic component 
as the conversation starter to the friendships. And it's the community that is helping us stay sober. It's not the bike. You know, the bike might be what brings us together or the climbing wall um, or the barbell in the gym, but it's the friendships that we find at the barbell or at the climbing wall that is what's helping me stay sober. Uh, really good point because we definitely, I would say, for the most part, cannot do this shit alone. <laughs> no. Yeah. Humans in general can't, right? We're, <laughs> so, we want our tribe. So what gave you the idea to begin? Well, I, I think, you know, so I was in recovery probably about six years, and and I had two really good friends that I'd climb with, and one guy was in recovery, and one of the women, woman, Jackie, was not, but she was a clinical social worker. And what would happen is, you know, things like New Year's would come and go, and I wouldn't even think about drinking. And for somebody in recovery, that's that's a big deal. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> and and I realized I wasn't thinking about drinking because my arms were so tired from ice climbing all day the day before, or we were getting up early to try to hike up some summit somewhere, and and the three of us kind of put our heads together and said, we got to figure out how to get this to more people because what I saw is a lot of people isolated and alone and early in recovery, almost more depressed than they were when they were in their addiction because they didn't know how to connect. And if you've had a drink and a drug in your system for all those years, building social connections, then you get sober. It's really scary to figure out how to build relationships without that stuff. And, and there's something in parallel play. Like if you and I are shoulder to shoulder facing the greater adversity of riding up Magnolia on our road bikes or, you know, climbing something up in Rocky Mountain National Park, when we get to the top, we've built a bond. Like in that sweat, in, that, in those fist bumps, and those you got it, you can do this, and those little encouragements, we're building a connection. And in that friendship, is where the support comes from. That is, it's just so powerful. I mean, most of us wish we had Phoenix multi-sport in our lives every day, whether we were had any issues with anything. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, it's all about making those connections and they're hard to find, especially with like-minded people who are, who have something in common, right? Yeah. Um, so, so you started Phoenix multi-sport in Boulder, correct? In, in Boulder, yep. And, um, it started in my living room. I kind of brought a whole bunch of people together and I'm like, hey guys, because I had raced triathlon in my own recovery journey and I saw all these tri teams and running clubs and I thought, man, if we brought this together with people in recovery, it'd be so powerful. And um, and I said, let's do this and we're gonna call it Phoenix, rising from the ashes. And, and um, they're all like, great, you should do that. <laughs> and then they left. <laughs> and so it was, I was <laughs> kind of- it was on you. <laughs> yeah. Hey. So I had a logo and, and a lot of ideas and um, some really great friends that were sounding boards and they all ended up getting involved with Phoenix and helping helping start it. Mm -hmm. And um, But basically we just started with a bike ride in North Boulder and a night of climbing at the climbing gym at the Boulder Rock Club. And it was free and people just had to be 48 hours sober and adhere to that code of conduct, which basically says, 
you know, no smoking or e-cigarettes. Don't be creepy. Phoenix is in the dating club. Um, it's physically and emotionally safe. So don't use any language that's racist, sexist, homophobic, in any way threatening. And we're just trying to create this welcoming environment. And what I find is when you go through that, people actually kind of sigh some relief because it's a handrail. And, and they know now that in that space they're supported, you know. That's, I mean, it does, it just, you have to lay the ground rules. So people who are coming out of a sketchy situation in their lives, having structure is a good thing, you know, but not too much structure, right? Right. (laughs) You don't want to feel like you're in jail or maybe you are in jail. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's why we pick the activities we do because the, the adversity is inherent in all of them, right? Like riding your bike up a mountain or climbing your first rock climb outside like it's real it's it's something that you tie into the rope everybody's scared who ties into a climbing rope for the first time and when you get to the top you own that like no one did that but you and and no matter what that inner monologue is telling you about your self-worth that proves that wrong over time and then over time you get better at it and then phoenix asks you to help bring new people into the sport now all of a sudden you're a mentor, you're a coach, you're an instructor, you're a volunteer, you're showing up so other people can find a path that supports them. And that also helps heal some of that stuff. You know, is there are there studies that show that the high you get from sports can help, I don't know, uh, displace the 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 yeah, yeah, the high you got from drugs or whatever. Well, you know, I my big aha moment in understanding addiction was actually trying to learn more about outdoor sports. And I read a book, it's called Deep Survival, Who Lives and Dies and Why. And it's really about the subconscious neuropathways that are established to preserve life. You know, it's, um, and I think of it as a boxer. The first time I got in the ring, I saw this punch coming at me and I thought, that's a left hook. And there was nothing I could do to get out of the way. And it hit me square in the side of the head and <laughs> rang my bell totally. And the next time a left hook was thrown, I, I parried it with my hand. Like It's like the, that neural pathway for self-preservation was built instantaneously. And, and I think that when we're numbing emotional pain with drinking and drugging, that neural pathway gets established. And you have a bad day and you go to the liquor closet. You know, You go to the bar. You pick up, you know, a bag of Coke and you go get high, you know, whatever it is. But if we can shift that neural pathway to say, when I'm having a bad day, you know, I call you up and we throw on our running shoes and we hit a trail or I hit the gym and I sweat it out. And usually by the end of the workout, I forget why I was so stressed in the first place. I think we can re- rewire the brain to establish new ways that we cope. You know, a lot of the people listening, probably a lot are women. You know, a lot of my community is women and a lot of them make a lot of jokes and actually act on this concept of I've had a long day. I can't wait to have my glass of wine Mm -hmm. every day, the end of the day and the jokes about how big the glass is. And, you know, so is that a dangerous way to think? Like, where is the slippery slope between drinking too much? Yeah. What's that line? I think that kind of language that we use around alcohol 
and around food and around body image and around all that stuff is really just rooted in us trying to connect, right? Like, you know, somebody puts, my sister and I have talked about this, you know, somebody puts down food on the table and, oh, you're being good because you're having this dessert and I'm, I'm being bad or you're being good because you're having salad. I'm being bad because I'm having cheesecake or, you know, it's like we, we, we try to bond around that language and, or joking around like self-deprecating language around our body image or, or around drinking. And all of it is just, I think us being a little awkward and not knowing how to connect in a genuine way. And that's why I think the exercise is so great because the sweat allows us to shed that armor and be a little more vulnerable. You know, somebody can come in and be full of shame about their heroin addiction but, you know, I say, grab your kettlebell. It's 53 pounds, just like mine. Let's start some kettlebell swings. And by the end of the workout, they kind of forget what they were worried about when they first got there. And they're just laughing and, and high-fiving because they got that done. So I think you're right on with that connection through an often negative um, self-deprecation, things like that. And that's something I think that our culture is working hard to change a little bit right now. I'm seeing some good changes in that way. Um, but I still think it's a little bit of a slippery slope yeah. because sometimes that joking really is uh, the root of a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And so with Phoenix, um, I know, and you've told me this back in the day that you literally have helped people who were on the precipice. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure I want to live anymore. Mm-hmm. And they found Phoenix. I mean, are those stories real? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think we all search for that place where we fit in and belong and are accepted. And it's, it's really hard to find. And I think at Phoenix, we're really conscious, the instructors that, so we've over, 11 years we've served 22,000 people with free recovery support and we're now in six cities and no nine cities and six states yep. <laughs> so you know we're a lot of places and we always talk about when that person walks in for the first time you have to scoop them up and and just let them know they're welcome because it's really scary to open the front door for the first time you know, they always, a lot of folks say I drove by a couple weeks in a row and never came into climbing, or I went by the gym three times and never came in. And and um, but once they come in, that's a huge step for them. And so we have to do what we can to make them feel welcomed and supported. And because you know, an example I'll share is I was getting in my truck. We have a gym in Denver. And I was leaving and the instructor wasn't there to coach class yet. He, they were, he was going to be there in maybe 20 minutes. And I'm getting in my truck and I just locked up the building and this young guy comes in, he tries to open the door and I could see he was a little frustrated and he started walking away. So I got out of my truck and, and said, hey, hang, I'll let you in. I'll sit with you until the coach gets here. So I let the guy in and almost immediately the instructor shows up and I just left. You know, I was like, okay, have a good workout. I'll catch you later. Almost a year later, he shared that he had heard about all these things that might help him stay sober. And the one thing he hadn't tried was Phoenix. And he went there and he tried to open the door and he said, forget it, I wanna go get high. And he started walking away. And so that little moment of me getting out of the car and going that extra step, which was really nothing for me, meant everything to him. 
So I think it's like being that witness to people's story, being present and being there for somebody when they need help and support, you never know how impactful it can be in their story. So everyone listening, you just be very aware of when you get that sixth sense, you you step out of your zone and get out of your car and you walk over there. I mean, I have tears in my eyes, Scott. That's so awesome. <laughs> and yeah. I'm sure uh, he appreciates you more than you know. Yeah, it uh, makes it hard when your phone rings though. <laughs> on the weekend. You're like, oh, God, I got to take it. Oh, it's just you got to te- take it. Another you telemarketer. You're just, you just going to save one more person's life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so Phoenix is growing. You've also done some incredible things. You mentioned your TEDx talk, which I'm going to link to because it's really incredible. Um, has that opened the door to more public speaking and, <laughs> and opportunities? Yeah, it has. And I, I think the, the thing I really tried to highlight in that was talking about the role that trauma plays in our society, because I think I think of it this way addiction it's not that different from many other chronic diseases in our country is that we we tend to experience the headache and the headache may be caused by a tumor and often that's as low down as we get is addressing the tumor but the tumor may have been created by a toxic environment if we could eliminate the toxic environment we'd save thousands or millions whereas if we just treat the tumor we save that one person and if we just treat the symptoms of the headache, then we don't really save anybody. And addiction is really, we're approaching it from treating the headache kind of approach. Yeah. There's a big push to get you know, more treatment beds out there and overdose reversal drugs. And, and you know, if somebody overdoses on an opiate, they can, they can be, their life can be saved now if they get mm-hmm. um, treated with Narcan. And I think that's, that's amazing, but you know, I, I always say that's it's sort of like handing out bandages at a mass shooting. It doesn't it doesn't address the core issue. Like we need to back up from the headache and the tumor to that toxic environment and figure out how to raise our families in nurturing environments and break the cycle of trauma that is often generationally passed. You know, if you grow up with one parent, you've lost the other to addiction or they're incarcerated and your neighborhood is unsafe and your school is failing and it's a pretty hard environment to bootstrap up from if you don't even own boots. So I think it's you know a little tangential, but I think there's a bigger issue that we need to look at. Absolutely. So do you, um, I know you've uh, been doing some work with White House in the past. You've met at least one president, right? <laughs> yeah. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that the like federal level is where we need to go with this? Can we, can we have reform and some kind of legislation that passes to help? I think that stuff can help if it's done really thoughtfully and intentionally. And the challenge is I think people turn to the kind of quick fix, you know, so it's, it's the stuff we're talking about is not going to be fixed with a prescription pad at a doctor's office. You know, that's not going to be fixed with a broad sweeping legislation about one thing. That stuff can all help in some, to some degree, but but what we really need to do is is figure out how to create an environment where people are supported and believed in and encouraged and given opportunities to make mistakes 
but aren't sentenced to a whole new path because of that mistake. Mm-hmm. And and that is much more challenging. I mean, I think, um, you know, Phoenix has had the opportunity to, to speak at a lot of conferences for treatment professionals and drug court professionals and um, you know, the, our deputy director, Jackie Helios, she did a Ted talk at the white house, <laughs> which was awesome. And, um, it was also part of the Boulder Ted talk, but, uh, TEDx, sorry. And so we're getting the message out there, but I think it's, it's going to take all of us wanting to help heal our own communities. And Phoenix is always willing to help somebody. If there's somebody listening and you're in Akron, Ohio, and you want to start something like Phoenix, reach out to us and we'll do our best to mentor you along and try to get a program like ours started there. Oh, that's a great idea. And that's a great thing to know. I was going to ask if they don't live near a current chapter, how, do you have any virtual programs for people to find the community at least? We don't, we don't really, um, we've been trying to figure that out. The safety part of it is is mm. the hardest to manage. Yeah. You know, if, if Joe Creepy's organizing the trail run, then it's probably not something you want to go on, <laughs> you know. But um, but if you get a core group of people that share a belief that you want to create a supportive environment and make it free for people, and you just start reaching out in your own community, and you go to a local CrossFit gym, you go to a y- local yoga studio, you talk to a, a local like cycling club, guaranteed you're going to start finding people in recovery that are already in those places and then you can band together with them and try to create something that that makes that safe supportive space and turns people on to all these awesome sports oh i love it so what sports do you do at phoenix we do crossfit boxing yoga strength training um, kettlebell climbing hiking biking mountain biking um, camping. I mean, if I didn't say that already, we've done mountaineering. Uh, we have surfing on the coasts. Surfing Colorado is not that good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, water sports, um, anything that we can do that brings people together. We don't do a lot of team sports, um, and it's more so that I'm really terrible at with you know basketballs and baseballs and all that. <laughs> no, it's just more so that that there's kind of the the winner, the loser, the the star player, the bench warmer, you know, there's all these roles that kind of play out. But when we do individual sports, but next to each other, we have our own wins, right? For me, if you come to CrossFit, it may be picking up the barbell for the first time and putting it over your head with no weight. Whereas another Phoenix team member might be training for the junior nationals as Mm -hmm. an Olympic weightlifter, you know, or something. It's, it's, it's accessible to everybody, but we do it with each other so we want to make sure that people who don't consider themselves athletes or think that you know maybe have some insecurities with their ability to perform in sports that this has nothing to do with that yeah all levels welcome yeah and i think it's important if you google phoenix multi-sport you look watch the videos everybody in there put on their running shoes for the first time or tied into the climbing harness for the first time and i remember what it was like for me and that was one of the moments that helped save my life. Um, and, and that's what the coaches and instructors are there to do is to, to sit with you in that moment and maybe give you that little encouragement until you own that belief yourself that you can do it. Yes. Own that belief. All right. Just a couple more questions here. We're getting down to the end. Um, is there anything you're doing right now in your life that scares you? 
Um, <laughs> running a national nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little scary, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, and honestly, like, I, don't, I didn't, I don't really, like, want to be in a leadership role. I just, I am here because I think we need to disrupt this, the way we're approaching this issue. You know, I think of, like, there's a term in business called creative destruction. And it's like, people started to try to make typewriters better. And then somebody else came out with a laptop. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. a massive leap that made typewriters obsolete. And imagine if we could do that in the addiction space and, and kind of innovate it so much that people could find the lifestyle like Phoenix before they even need it. And that's sort of one of my dreams. So we're starting to back into some young adult programming. We just hired a young adult manager in Colorado who's going to start some stuff. And we have that in Boston already. Um, but I think for me, I think I'm trying to make a cycling comeback, which is a little scary. You cool. Know? So, I like it. Um, you know, I'm not the size of your, I'm like, you know, six, three, You're big two, guy. 260, yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, I just want to make sure I have good wheels. <laughs> Carry a lot of extra spares. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, getting back on the bike for me is like my own little Phoenix moment now. I love it. I just think there's something about pushing the pedals up a hill that is really peaceful. And, and uh, with all my travel for work, it's been hard to connect with that. Well, and with all the sports that are available out there right now, you will never get bored. There is always a place <laughs> to push yourself. You know, one thing we actually didn't hit on today was any stats yep. on drugs and alcohol, and, and especially you just mentioned youth. I know a lot of people listening are worried about their own kids or are having their kids are having issues, and they're seeing them experiment. How scared should we be? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say this. If if you have any prescription drugs in your house that aren't an active prescription being used thoughtfully by the person they're prescribed for, uh, I would talk to your doctor about how to dispose of them. I wouldn't keep them at home. Um, and if you're ever getting prescribed opioids, I would be really thoughtful about how long you're on them and talk to your doctor very specifically about the addictive properties of the drugs. Um, because the conversion to opiate addiction and heroin addiction is not like it was when I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid, I, you know, we smoked a little weed. We knew a guy who had something else. So he, we tried a little Coke, you know, like it, it was, it was this path where you went down from stealing a few beers from the fridge to, you know, you know, finding somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who get like Mm -hmm. other drugs. But I see people now gone from that pain meds for a knee surgery to heroin use within two years. Wow. You know, they're, they're, there's, there's a big push and, and I believe a lot of it was driven by big pharma to, to, to push out pain management drugs. Like 80% of all the pain medication distributed globally is in the U S and we certainly don't have 80% of the world's pain. No. That, that's very eye-opening. The leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50 is overdose now. It is? It is. And we lose a loved one every four minutes to addiction when you add in alcohol. Wow. So. That's, that's pretty rough. Um, so it is very, very serious. 
It is. Yep. You know, on that note, I was wondering what your thoughts were on all the legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this will always, some, especially in Boulder, somebody always gets spun out when I talk about it. Well, <laughs> but I mean, it's, um, this is, yeah. but I, I think of it this way. It's, if we lived in a society of adults, it would be a different conversation. But we don't. We have kids that are growing up underneath us, and they're going to learn by how we interact with, with drugs and alcohol. I also think that decriminalization and legalization are two different topics. And so is the topic of establishing a neurotoxin industry, which is really the way we went through it in Colorado. So if you said, hey, I'm a guy, I want to grow one pot plant in my house for personal use. I won't use it in public. If I do, I should get a citation. I won't use it around minors. If I do, I'll get a citation. I won't sell it or else it'll be criminal. So, but not more like running a stop sign, not gone to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is a better approach than an industry being established that's going to find its next users, going to refine its delivery methods, going to figure out how to market it and brand it and reach as many people as possible. And that is, I think, the mistake that Colorado made in the way we went about it. I think we could have decriminalized and had personal use legalization without having a weed industry. It's really, do you think that um, marijuana is a gateway drug? I think for me, it was, you know, and I think we, there's, there's science out there about how it affects the developing brain. So it's less of a big deal, like I said before, if adults are using it, but if kids the perception of harm has been reduced by the way that they go that industry goes about legalization and and it it actually damages the brain in a way that's irreversible when you have regular adolescent use mm-hmm. yeah that's a big topic man and uh, it sounds though like prescription drugs the things that kids are going to find in their parents you know medicine cabinet could be as much of a gateway as anything these days and i don't remember that at all growing up yeah it it definitely wasn't around there's um there's some good books out there on it if if people want to google it but there's um one that i was just reading called dreamland that talks a lot about um in the rust belt you know the emergence of of uh opioid addiction and and how it kind of played out in our cities wow okay well, here's the deal. We could keep talking on these subjects for a really long time, but I'm going to I'm going to roll into the very last question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. And that is that if you could leave our listeners with one final nugget, one piece of advice to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? I'm a big believer in just positive affirmations, you know, that we're all gifts to the world and that we're all of value, we're all deserving of love and and that we all need the support of each other and um i think if we can think about communities you know kind of um it's great you know with your with i'm sitting here with my iphone i can kind of interact with anybody in the world but but taking the time to interact with the people that are right around you and building that real human connection i think is where we really find joy and um that idea of flash paper on the fire. If you're doing something and as soon as you do it, you have to do it again to feel good or get that rush or feel of value, then 
you should probably look at your relationship with it and try to find something that's a little more meaningful, that log on the fire. Gosh, so well said. Scott, you are amazing. Thank you so much for all your time today. We gotta get you back out there so you can keep working on a better world. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh boy, that was uh, a really cool episode on so many levels. You know, Scott is probably the exception. But what he's trying to do with Phoenix Multisport is to turn his story of recovery into the norm. Now, he believes that you do this partly through creating new healthy relationships, and I totally agree with that. When you surround yourself by positive, healthy people, it's contagious. And as Scott says, we are all deserving to be in this world. And again, If you or someone you know is questioning whether drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling or whatever are a problem in in their lives or your life, then they probably are a problem. And the best thing you can do is to stop. Stop them and see what happens. And if you you struggle to stop, then I, I think that's a sign that you need some help beyond yourself. So reach out. The worst thing that could happen is if somebody listening thinks they need some help and they don't reach out. This is an open door and it's totally confidential. It's no big deal. You can reach out through nicoledeboom.com. The show notes on Scott's episode will include some contact links. You can also reach out to me via email, nicole.deboom at skirtsports.com. Um, you can call Phoenix Multisport, just reach out. (laughs) And don't forget Scott's story about the young man who's trying to get into the gym when it was locked. I mean, this is for all those people listening who aren't currently uh, worried about themselves or, or others around them because you can still help other people, you know, by simple actions, right? When you see people in duress, do something about it. You just don't know how much impact you may have. All right, everyone, you know what time it is. But before I sign off today, I want to ask you to take a moment and please post your favorite Run This World podcast episode on whatever social media platform you prefer. Just be sure to uh, tag me or email me at nicole.deboom at skirtsports.com. And don't forget to join our Run This World with Nicole DeBoom Facebook group. It's an easy place to see what's going on with any recent or past episode, as well as what's going on with some of our guests today. I sometimes will put updates on there. And when you do go to post your favorite episode, which I really hope you do, and I'm so curious as to which ones you like the best, um... The best way to, to do that is to go to nicoledeboom.com, click on the podcast, and just scroll around until you find the right one, and you can link right to it. And the show notes usually include a pretty cool story about what the guest, you know, the guest's background, etc. All right, now it is finally time. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.